Look, up in the sky. Is it a podcast? Is it a journal? Is it just a whole bunch of dribble? Who knows? But it is the Pure Mongrels RPG Musings. Good morning, Paris. Glad to see you got out of bed to put in another journal. If anyone's listening to this, it's Sunday morning, 7.44am, 17th to the 11th, 2019. Brain and I been lying in bed thinking and thinking and thinking, and so it was time to put some of those thoughts into the journal so they didn't get lost in the ether and forgotten about. So pretty excited. Brain and I have decided that um, term one 2020 is when the Dormandia setting has to be ready. Um, we're not going to implement it this year in in the state that I'm looking to do. It's got to be ready for term one, which is a realistic um, expectation as I'm this week launching the next gamer site or building the new gamer site, Adam Werribee, which is going to take a metric ton of work. But that's, that's not why I journaled. I know I've got a diary that tells me what I'm going to do for work. This is about the campaign setting. So what Brain and I have been thinking about, it's amazing how I'm segregating the two, but yeah, Brain and I, um, really looking at heritages and races. I prefer heritages. Um, the term race has been used for a long time and, and it carries... I suppose negative connotations in the sense that we always use it in terms of a race war or racial differences, uh, racial inequality. So heritages, I think, is a is a better term. And one of the things that's always struck me about a lot of role playing games, or at least the way people play the games, is doesn't matter what cultural background, what genetic background the character has. The majority of players and GMs default all of those beings to act like humans. There's not a lot of differentiation um, beyond some stats on a character sheet, which might allow you to see in the dark, or you, or the character might uh, be better at magic or more intelligent or stronger in terms of stat-wise. But in terms of the heritage itself being portrayed on the tabletop, Outside of the standard, I don't know, stereotypes where for some reason all dwarves speak with a Scottish accent, all elves are pretty prissy, and uh, all orcs tend to be portrayed as dullards. There's no differentiation between the heritages. They all act, think, feel very similar to humans. Or they are humans, really. They're just humans with pointy ears or fangs or shorter than normal broader chests that's it they're all really humans and that didn't 
it's not that it doesn't sit right with me because, hey, play the game any way that you want. But I feel that there was an opportunity being missed. And so one of the things that I really wanted to portray in my Dormandia setting um, comes from the notion or comes from what I understand of, of how role-playing helps organically in terms of uh, helping with interpersonal skills, helping with identity, helping with purpose. And, and so I gave a lot of thought to what races I wanted, or sorry, what heritages I wanted within my game, how I could portray or sorry, how the game could organically portray some of the traits that are displayed in many of the individuals struggling um, with interpersonal skills in a way that they could be examined at the table without making anyone feel uh, attacked or shamed and presented in such a way that they could be dealt with at the table just as you would any other uh, social interaction or challenge in a role-playing game. So I guess I probably should expand a bit on that. But actually, I think I'll, I'll start with, with a bit more of the background to Dormandian history, which allows me to put these backdrops in. So I, it was important to me that I didn't just drop in these these heritages or drop in the version of, of magic or um, the things that I see a lot of our guys identify with that I want in the game they still had to make sense. Um, so, for instance, I've already talked about how Pokemon is a huge thing for our participants, and I wanted that as part of the magic system so that those that lent towards, had leaned towards that Pokemon trainer-style thing, they would find a place in this game. But even if, but those that weren't could still use magic and use it as a cool idea. Anyway, so I'll, I'll get to that at an, another journal, Magic Itself. Um Identity is a huge thing for our guys and I see, you know, I have a wide range of clients who identify in different ways, whether it's um, transgender, uh, sometimes it's it's uh, species fluidity. So I've got a couple of clients that um, identify as furries and while I personally am still, it's not that I'm coming to grips with furry, I fully understand it's a subculture, it's a way of identifying each other. I'm... I'm constantly amazed at how brave these individuals are. You know, coming to coming to anywhere, whether it be gamer or any space, uh, our local game store guff, d- dressed with furry ears or a tail, I'm, I'm always amazed at how much strength that must take to to do it and and to be genuinely identify yourself as that. But also, what I love is the acceptance of the gaming community you know no one bats an eyelid well, sorry there is one one individual that's batted an eyelid but this particular individual has very defined views of identity right wrong what a man should do what a woman should do that kind of thing um and we're working on that that's part of what gamer is this isn't about changing opinion it's about acceptance though so it's not like we don't sit there and try and force anyone to think a certain way and we certainly don't try correct anyone's thinking but we do instill or instills we try to instill understanding patience um, and acceptance of all people no matter who they are and and to try and not be as judgmental so anyway moving on so animal hybrids are something that's come up a lot in our role-playing games and 
Um, so I've I've put an element of that in this in this setting that makes more sense, and I've added one that actually attaches to actually two technically um, to some some people's love of stompy robots, which I'll get to in a sec, and dinosaurs. But let me let me give you a big brief on the Age of Dormandia setting. The setting itself, or the world of Dormandia, has two large continents. You could class one as civilized, that one's called Mirantar, and you can call the other one Wild, which is Carnamrath. So that was done not only to facilitate the history, but also because I wanted the ability to have a true frontier area, a place completely untouched by quote-unquote civilized heritages. Although, as the game unfolds, that's not necessarily true. But certainly, the area itself of of Carnamrath is not only very wild frontier, but the challenges that it will present will allow me to not only alter a lot of standard monsters in the monster manual and environments, but I'll get to that in a second. And then Mirantar is is well civilized. It's carved out with the various alliance races and in that side you have your standard fantasy style games that lean more towards that game of thrones diplomacy spies intrigue kind of games so that's the two continents a brief history on the world is that about 200 years ago and I'll, I'll preface don't take all this as gospel this is all liable to change as i develop it further but um, a lot of this has been cobbled together from various things in the past and slowly but surely refined and it hasn't been finished refined so anyway uh so 200 years ago the world of dormandia uh, was a complete landscape of war this the oldest of human races or oldest of humans heritage not race known as the zarama were on the verge of conquering the entire planet and they had gone to war against everybody well mainly because they were xenophobic religious zealots under the guise of a prophecy that stated that if magic was allowed to go unchecked it would draw a dark force to the world of Dormandia, which would then come and conquer and enslave the planet. The Zaramar decided, well, the only way to protect a planet from being conquered and um, enslaved is if, well, they conquered and enslaved it first. Generally how I see xenophobic religious zealots kind of act. They, they tend to end up doing exactly what they're claiming people shouldn't do or why a specific people should be attacked but I digress and that's certainly not a, a theme that will come up in the game anyway so that, that's the backdrop so they're, they're on the verge of winning and they had a big part of their army was using a race called the Draktar which is I want to say like Dragonborn but they're more like like they've, they have more of a variety than Dragon Ball. And actually, I, I see them as more dinosaur-based. Or um, So the imagination style of the, the Draktar for me is that if I want to make a Triceratops version or a T-Rex version with his funny little stubby arms, probably not a good, good idea to do T-Rex, but a raptor or whatever, you could make a hybrid character for this. Anyway, this race was enslaved and was used as the majority or the bulk of the main forces that would attack 
And so they were winning. They were winning. In fact, they'd, uh, they'd conquered all of Karnamrath, um, which at that point was civilized, and they were on the verge, or they'd, they'd entered Mirantar, and it was estimated they were mere months from, from taking it all. That's how powerful they were. And so the desperate allied forces of the free peoples of Dormandia had banded together and come up with a plan. They knew that they could no longer take this army head on they had to hit the they had to hit the the power base of the the Zarama. they had to they had to hit hard and try and wipe out the the leadership and hopefully put the army in such a disarray that they could then fight back properly so they hatched this plan which was going to create a giant magic portal that would take them from their continent back to Karnamrath where they would attack the city of uh, Arkenmark, which was the capital of the Zarama Empire. And so they gathered what was left of their elite forces and left enough troops together to, to sort of defend, hold off as long as they could while this attack happened. And they started coupling to, or pulling together over a thousand mages to create this portal. And everyone involved knew this was this was an all or nothing gambit. In fact, the mages that were creating this portal would be consumed. This is how powerful the magic that was required to create this portal. So they'd die. And the, the army that was going across knew that they would likely never come back. But this, this was the last chance. This was, this was the last throw of the dice to save mums and, and kids at home. But unfortunately, um, as is the want with any war... There are traitors everywhere. There are spies everywhere. And the empress of the uh, Zarama Empire got word that this was going to happen. And so while she she discovered where the landing spot would be or where this portal would open and the, um, the army would come through, she didn't know when. So she decides that she will speed up the Alliance's timeline and put it in her control. So she hatches a plan to take as many of her heritage forces back home to surround this area to meet this last army head on, leaving behind mostly Draktar troops and a, and a skeleton core of units made up of Zarama infantry and, and commanders to control that Draktar army. And then she ordered them to just attack with such ferocity that it would force the Alliance to think that this was the final assault and they would then straight away send their army right there and then. So she knew when they were coming and they'd be caught in the trap. It's all pretty straightforward so far. So, of course, this does happen. The The Alliance arrives, suddenly find they're, in, they're outflanked on all sides, they can't go back, so they desperately fight. And all seems lost, as is the want with these kind of stories. But the Empress made two tactical errors on the day, which would eventually be her undoing, or the undoing and ultimately the destruction, for the most part, of the Zarama Empire. And the, the first mistake that she made was so convinced that she was going to win that this was the final death nail that she had called everybody of power within the Zarama Empire to join her on this hill or this this large yeah massive hill overlooking the battlefield so she had brought every single person that had any form of power uh, or authority in her empire that wasn't on the front lines 
to this hill. Mistake number one. Mistake number two was she vastly underestimated the loyalty of an enslaved species under the pains of essentially death of their peoples. Um, she had coerced the Draktar into fighting on their side. The Draktar and themselves are not inherently bad people. And because she didn't leave enough people to control them, the the Draktar suddenly found themselves in a position where they had the upper hand against their enslavers and understanding that the Alliance had now created the biggest distraction ever, turned on their, their handlers, if you will, on the uh, continent of uh, Mirantar and ultimately joined the Alliance on that side and protected them, wiped out the, the majority of the Zarama in Mirantar and going back to the main battle on Karnamrath, a bunch of heroes and core and a core elite unit picked up that all the, the Empress and her retinue of rulers and lords were on this hill behind the enemy lines and so convinced was the Empress that she couldn't be touched. She only had her own personal guard around. So they managed to break through this one line and just storm the hill and start wiping out people left, right and center, causing disarray everywhere. And the Empress in her in her final desperate act of zealotism pulls out her enchanted spear because yes they use magic too hence you know the where we see a lot of these kind of zealots where we must destroy magic or we can use it for ourselves because we're the good you know we're doing it the right right way but you can't have it so she anyway she in her last desperate defiant act she drives the spear into the nexus of the magical ley lines of carnival of the planet but for, for where Karnamrath is, creating this cataclysmic event. Not only does, in her mind, it was going to destroy magic, but what it actually did was release it in such a, it's like it's like popping a major pimple, essentially a, a massive volcano pimple. Not only by doing this did she destroy herself, everyone around her, and everyone for many, 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 many leagues around. She, so unfortunately, killing off even the good guys released all this magical energy into the atmosphere or at least into the ecosystem of Karnamrath that that entire continent would then be dogged and covered by mana storms for over or almost 200 years. And so at the end point of this history, you've got a situation where Karnamrath is believed to be now inhospitable because it's just covered by mana storms and the survivors all live on the other continent. So mostly the remnants of the Alliance, a, a, the a remnants of the Draktar people, and they come to an agreement. You know, they th no more fighting, enough. Um, we've lost already too much. In fact, the cost in lives was so great that it would take a century or more just for the various races to recover to a point that they could even consider fielding an army if you get my point there, there was no fight left it was about rebuilding it was about licking wounds and and taking stock of what was left and so uh, mirantar was rebuilt from from the the ashes of of war the draktar that had survived 
which was which was a major force, but they were mostly military. Although every genre, every genre, every gender was a was available in that army, so they were given a, a parcel of land that they could call their own, uh, their own homelands, and rebuild their own peoples on the premise that they would help rebuild the continent, which they did. And for you know, hundred and eighty years, they live in peace. Everything is great. Uh, magic is gone from the world however in in the traditional sense there was none of this just accessing magical energies and making things happen the disruption to the magical ley lines was so great that even even the magic remaining on their side of the world had been so badly affected that magic just didn't exist in its form the knowledge was still there Uh, many of the libraries had survived but magic in its form did not exist and it's at this point that the discovery of elementals appears and the elementals in this world are not while they can be sorry well they can be the big giant things that we see in a dungeons and dragons world in in this world they are essentially Pokemans. So, or Poke, Pokemans is what I say at work, just to the kids, I'm sorry, Pokemon. Um, where a person that was normally attuned to magic, you know, they are born and, and they would become a magic user and they had that affinity with magic. Now what was happening was they would actually form an affinity with a particular elemental that they would then create essentially a symbiotic relationship with, where they would quote-unquote capture that elemental which isn't really what's happening they're pairing with that elemental and depending on how strong they are or how strong they get they can pair with more than one elemental and then this would provide their magical ability and in a role-playing sense a lot of it will come about from instead of the power coming from the character they they essentially work with their elemental to create the effect they're looking for and i will go into magic in a in a greater detail in, in, at another day but that that's to give you the concept so happy days this is happening for 180 years then the mana storms pass they uh, eventually peter out and much to everyone's surprise instead of Karnamrath being a desolate wasteland that they were expecting they actually discover that Karnamrath has is overgrown with life the forests and jungles and tundras and all the other kinds of ecosystems have taken back the continent so every castle every kingdom everything that used to be in Karnamrath for the most part has been taken back by nature overgrown etc so all of a sudden you have this continent that is just fertile with resource absolutely booming with resources forests to defoliate um, mines to be to be dug up uh, sorry mines to be created as there's just resources everywhere and the uh and the, the free peoples of Dorman, you think happy days we can go over there and we can we can create this magnificent empire now we can we can really become the peoples we were meant to be but when they get there uh, first of all they discover that one city is still intact and it's a coastal city called Carnum. and when i say intact it certainly wasn't it was certainly worse for wear but it was not taken back by nature as such and it was it was a it used to be an old it was used to be a human city absolutely massive as a major trading hub and it becomes a major trading hub again and and that is sort of the launching point for all adventures in this region 
there is a great fear that with all this resource, war is a very real possibility. You know, people trying to stake claims to old lands or claim new lands, there was the potential that allies would suddenly turn on each other. So all the free peoples get together and they make this majocracy, uh, a council of mages, which are essentially the wisest people of the various races that have little Pokemans. they get to rule the city. Well, they get to run this city to make sure to oversee that no one gets the upper hand, no one dominates this new continent. And that has some interesting political adventures and stuff coming up, which I'm I'm pretty excited and interested about. Uh, however, the surprises keep coming for the free peoples, and that is they not only discover that the um, this continent is not Terranalis, but actually has people living on it, the... Um, one of the areas at the very east of the continent, um, which was, is, Draktar lands, still exists. It was actually not touched um, or was not hampered as much by the minor storms. And so there is a contingent of Draktar living there, a, a Draktar people. But these people have become very much isolationists. They never want to be slaves again. And how they will come up in the story and how that we played through the story where you've got the... Alliance Draktar versus the highly independent Draktar, which will be, which should be interesting too. I'm looking forward to that. But a number of races were created out of these mana storms. So when the actual destruction of the of the ley line, this magical energy flowed across the world, across uh, across the continent. And not only did it end up mutating a whole bunch of flora and fauna, which will allow me to modify. Uh, a number of creatures that uh, use a lot of fantasy tropes in my games and give a reason for why I've done it or why it can be. So a lot of my, a couple of my guys who see the world very much in black and white, I remember distinctly having a long discussion with a young man who wouldn't accept the version of a chupacabra out of ETU when he, he had a full understanding of what a chupacabra was and it couldn't be anything like what was depicted in ETU. So this is my way of of presenting a lot of the monsters and stuff that you'll find in a monster manual in a way that's different because they've been mutated by magic and hopefully that will appease my my guys that see everything in black and white, understanding things can change and that just because it's not the way that you expected it to be something to be doesn't mean that it's wrong. Working on those interpersonal skills. Anyway, some races were created out of that and they were essentially the merging of two genetic materials for want of a better term. So I'll get to that when I get to the races. But that that's currently where the state of Dormandia is, except, of course, that the Empress actually made a third error, and that is that when she detonated or destroyed the Leyline Nexus, she had essentially released enough energy to spark or attract the interest of the dark force that would eventually come to Dormandia and attempt to conquer and slave it. And it's taken roughly about 200 years to get here. So that's that's where the game setting starts for where the players start the game. And that is roughly 200 years after the events that I have outlined. So I hope I haven't bored you to death with that background. I, my voice tends to be a bit droney when, I'm, when I've just woken up. 
but that's 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 the that's I'm getting excited now. That's the setting. That's the backdrop. So let's get to the heritages and what I'm looking for. So again, I spoke to I spoke about how, in my opinion, in what I've seen at the table, many players and GMs that I've seen over the years tend to play every heritage as humans with a slightly different bent. Right, so they're either short, stocky, and speak like Scottish people, and are fascinated with mining stuff, dwarves, or they have they're long, slender, and have pointy ears, and love magic and the finer things, elves, or they're short, got hairy feet, smoke on pipes, and love to eat, halflings. Um, other than that, they are you know I, I could go through all the races, but other than that, even orcs, even dragonborn, even hell, even warforged, right they are they're just humans they're just humans with a couple of added stuff and i didn't want it's not that i didn't want that i i I mean for me personally i want to explore more about having different heritages work in the same space but to have that heritage mean something just like it does in our world our real world and to explore those concepts through role playing because it's so organic that we don't have to just you know point these things out they just happen and if 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 you're not in a space to be examining or looking at those concepts, you will still play the game, have fun, and and it'll all pass you by. But if you're in that in that moment where you're actually questioning identity, where you're quest quest questioning, um, you know where everyone fits in the world, where you fit, where you fit versus someone else. This is a great way to examine those concepts in a logical, organic, and React, react. I want to say reactionary way. That's not the the word I'm looking for. Where you you present things and then you can test those ideas and see how the reactions come back. That's it's a big part of what we do. So yeah, as as you can imagine, um, apart from while the ma- the majority of the young people that I work with all have um, various mental health challenges. I my department is a mental health unit first and foremost specializing in youth that suffer with things like depression anxiety body dysmorphia isolation and a metric other things that that young people can face when their brain which is the most powerful thing in us is telling them is providing a version of reality that isn't correct that's probably not the right term either but Look, for, for anyone out there that's right now going, these kids are soft or, um, you know, they just need some discipline. Believe me, this isn't this isn't a discipline thing. I, I, I grant that upbringing may play a part, that uh, demographics play a part, economics play a part, but these young people, their brains are not well, for want of a better term. That doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just like if they had the flu or any other physical ailment that someone could have, these brains just need some healing. And they see the world and the, sorry, the brain has them see the world in in a way that is not necessarily correct. That's a whole different discussion though. But um, anyway, so we have young people that, that suffer from mental health challenges and it's my job to assist them on their recovery journey, to come back from the catastrophic events that created from, from that were created from their mental health challenge and to have them come back and enjoy their lives again and re-enter society and, and, and chase their dreams and goals, wants and needs because they are all wonderfully capable individuals. That's the main 
focus of what I do at Gamer. But the program proved so successful at what it was doing that it also, and it also found itself applicable for um, helping individuals that have or are on or have autism spectrum disorder, otherwise known as ASD or autism, um, Asperger's, which is, I think the, I think the clinical term is higher functioning autism, which I don't like that term at all, but it's used. So Asperger's, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or better known as ADHD. Hyperactivity, just as a side note, really needs to be changed because it that hyper part really means hyper-focused, believe it or not. Many individuals with ADHD tend to zone into one thing and get locked into it. They get hyper-focused on that one thing. In fact, um, some very good friends of mine who are miniature painters are extremely successful and fantastic miniature painters because of their ADHD, but I digress. And the other one that we work that I work with um, that this program has proved successful with is oppositional defiance disorder, otherwise known as ODD. And this isn't just individuals that are belligerent or rebellious. This is these are individuals where either through mental health or because of a non neurotypical brain. Actually, I think it's all because of non neurotypical brain. I'm not giving a medical diagnosis. No one take what I say as medical advice, okay? But essentially what what it means is that anytime they come up to a form of authority, their natural instinct is to discount it, rebel against it, and rail against it, which for me as a 47-year-old father, when I first encountered ODD, I found it rather challenging to have, you know, uh, a 12-year-old talking to me like I was an underling or a piece of dirt. But I've come to grips with that now that I fully understand what this these individuals are going through. But it's my job, part of my job is to find a way to show these individuals that a path that allows them to work on their communication, interpersonal skills in such a way that they don't talk to people like that. Anyway, that's what role playing can do, folks. It's not it, it doesn't happen overnight, but sometimes it does happen. And anyway, so that's that's what I'm working with and and so for me, having someone just go, don't do this, this is wrong, this is right, act more like this, doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to anybody. For for the most part, if you tell anybody this is wrong or don't do that, the reaction is, first of all, what is wrong? Uh, how, how do I explain what wrong is? And I'll get to that in another time I'm talking about what I do at work. But you tell a young person, don't do that, and they're just going to do it. that's just being a kid, let alone ODD, right? You watch me, pal. (laughs) I'm going to do it. So what we found very successful is using role-playing as as an organic way of showing cause, effect, consequence of action, and a whole myriad of other human interactions. And I've gone on a bit of a tangent, so I'll stop. I'll, I'll go just so that you know that's what I'm dealing with. And so I had, I think, originally about 16 races, um, yes, I'm getting to the race, uh, sorry, heritages. I'm getting to the heritage bit. I've pared them down and I've culled them purely because I I want every heritage in this world to have meaning in terms of that ability. Sorry, that knocking noise is my dog's tail. He's telling me it's time for breakfast. It's not time for breakfast, Rocky. Go to bed. Where was I? Yeah, so every ra- every heritage has to have something that I can hook into to make an example or use examples in gameplay 
that allow me to show methods of interaction that are that need to be examined, not correct or incorrect, just examined. And and through that process, people can self-discover and change their behavior patterns. Yep, sorry, rambling. The dog threw me for a loop. <laughs> anyway, let's get to the uh, let's get to the heritages. So humans, humans are humans. I was going to mess with humans. There's no point. I could I could make a myriad of different variations to humans, but I'm trying to keep this simple too and reduce the analysis paralysis. So humans standard humans just like any fantasy world happy days humans um, i will preface too that when someone picks these races i do not have an expectation that they will play these heritages in terms of the way they're written i fully expect many of them to play it much like we play every other fantasy game and that is that they'll all be default humans but when i role play the npcs I will be showing the differences and I'm giving the players the opportunity to do the same thing. Yeah. So, okay. Humans, we've done that. Moving on. So then we have the Feyblood. Now the Feyblood are essentially my elven heritage. So a slender race, much akin to Tolkien elves in looks, except for a couple of key differences. So the first key difference is these individuals show no human emotion so their so their faces show no no facial expression it doesn't matter whether they're sad mad angry happy their face itself is almost a blank canvas so even more like i'm not talking about a vulcan here this isn't about controlling emotion their faces are incapable of showing emotion at all and that's going to be an interesting challenge because what i've paired it with is a essentially a bone crown or an external bone that tapers from one ear goes round the base of the back of the head and tapers back to the other ear uh, if you want a visual representation of what i'm talking about watch babylon 5 and look at season two when ambassador delenn comes out of her chrysalis and she has changed I won't spoil any more than that in case you haven't watched the series fully. It's an old show now, but one of the best science fiction shows that I've ever seen. Love it. Um, so anyway, so if you can imagine this bone crown that starts at one ear, goes around the back of the head, takes a, um, takes up major real estate in the back of the head, comes back um, to the other ear, and that is exposed. So these these beings still have hair, okay? So they have hair on the top of their head, and they can grow long hair at the back, etc. But this bone is is always visible where this differs from the Mimbari in Babylon 5 is that this bone is actually what shows displays emotion so if the person I haven't centered on the colors yet but in my head the way I see it is if the thing is if sorry the thing if the bone is like a blue color it means they're calm and depending on how deep the blue is, depends on how deeply calm they are, I guess. Black would represent anger, and depending on how onyx-like it got, um, we show how angry they are. Green was for happy. I know green is normally associated with envy, but for some reason I had green as happy. Sort of like a uh, maybe a morph from blue to green made sense to me. Gray, or possibly just bone-like, is sad. But I saw it as, as I've always seen sadness and depression as an absence of color etc i will go through the colors and my reasoning behind this was not only did it sound interesting to me to be able to role play a way of emotions that was different from my end 
for those individuals that have a hard time expressing emotions coherently, for want of a better term, I want to see what would happen if they could describe their emotions in the form of colors. Like I have individual, I work with individuals that have a great deal of difficulty of controlling emotions. And I'm looking at using the expression of color to reflect those emotions in a way of hopefully understanding where they're at at the moment. And then how to, instead of me saying, um, or instead of working on, hey, we need to sort of calm down or let's take it down to take the notch down to a three or um, whatever. So like, okay, if we're, if we're currently in black angry mode or red angry mode, as I said, I haven't done the colors yet. What do I need to do to get it to a green? What do I need to do? What do you need to do to get it to a blue? Not what do I need to do. What do you do? That, that's kind of where I'm working. So this is, this is kind of an experiment for me too, which we will explore in the game. So that's the Fae Bloods. Now there's, there's, um, there's other history that I've put in with the Fae Bloods, which I'll talk about later. But essentially this race is sterile, for want of a better term. And one of the things they've had to come to grips with is that the only way they're going to survive as a race is if they essentially mate with humans. Brings us to our next race, the Half Bloods. Now this was, apart from an interesting part of the the story where I wanted to put this um, element of the story or the backdrop, not the story, an element of the backdrop where a race is facing its own mortality, or a heritage is facing its own mortality and how what they would do to protect that or to try and save themselves. That actually comes up in, in for two of the heritages. But So the Half-Bloods have always, in the past, the union between Fey-Blood and, and human has been been around for a long time. But Half-bloods were always considered outcasts. They were considered mistakes. Now, they are considered by many as the salvation of a race. Some of those old biases still exist, which will be talked about within game, where applicable. Um, remember, this game can be scaled up and down depending on, on the participants um, in terms of appropriateness and um, rel- um relativeness relativeness is that a word anyway so now we've got the half blood so the half bloods is a union of the angelic fey blood and with the variety that is the human being um now fey bloods do show emotions on their face and they don't they can have the bone or a smaller version of the bone but it is inert right it doesn't do the colors like um their fey blood ancestry but the thing here with these guys is these guys feel emotion very, very deeply. So whether it's, I mean, in my head, I guess I've got it, you know, that combination of, of human emotion with this very intense version of displaying emotion via this bone crown has created this species that not only can't hide its emotions, so its emotions are always playing on its face. If it's happy, you'll see it. If they're angry, oh, you'll see it, you know, that kind of thing. In fact, it's so intense that many half-bloods wear a mask to to hide their feelings. And this is, this is a way also for not only to make an interesting story or an interesting backdrop, but many of my guys hide their true feelings behind masks, right? And and while I'm not, I'm, I don't go to the table and go, hey, make a half-blood if you want to discuss hiding your feelings behind a mask. I don't 
It does, doesn't work that way. It's just this is an option if you want to play this character. Oh, and by the way, this is their their heritage. Um, this is some of the things they do. And then I just leave it for the player to use and pick and choose what they want out of that. And if someone wants to explore dealing with emotions hidden behind a mask, the half-blood is, is a great way to do it. You can do it with a human. You don't have to do it with a half-blood, but anyway. Now... Yeah, the thing that the the challenge that half bloods face, apart from you know this showing emotion all the time, is obviously that being shunned by both races because humans tend to find that showing of emotion on that intense scale is overpowering. It's just too much. Now, this is in my mind, and it's not something that I will be portraying in the game and but I may play it with my friends just because I think it's an interesting concept but it's not something I'd bring up at work but so for instance in my mind I had this impression that these half-bloods are incredibly beautiful people and because of the way they display emotion so friendship admiration even love it comes across so intently that the reactions by many humans and it is misunderstood okay so for instance, if someone was being, if a half-blood was being very friendly, it, there is a potential coupled with their beauty and the way that it displays on their face that a person may, a human may interpret that as love, right? And and so that has led many half-bloods into awkward positions. It could mean that people think that they were overly angry or dangerous. It could mean that they were overly amorous, overly manic, if they were too happy, that kind of thing. And so there's been a lot of misunderstandings. Um, how I would play that out at work, I haven't decided yet. So for now, that's not on that work table. Um, i got to practice or tr- trial it in in my private games first. But essentially, these, these people have been the outcasts everywhere. And the only way that a lot of them could make any living was as performers, artists, singers, that kind of stuff. And so... You know, that, that ties in with that cliche of why half-elf bards are a thing. Anyway, half-bloods. Um, interesting concept. that They may actually drop out completely just because I can see a lot of issues around that emotional state. Um, depending on how it's played, it could create trauma at the table. And that is the last thing I ever want to do. They're there for now, and I'll see how they go. In, in the sense that they will be closely monitored and and a lot of the stuff that I've just talked about then will not be presented at the table. Anyway, moving on. So then we have the Steinthane, which are my version of dwarves. I hate the term dwarf, especially as I work in, although I'm a mental health unit, I actually work for a disability organization and the term dwarfism is an actual disability. So I've never been a great fan of the word dwarf. Dwarven, yes. Dwarf, no. Um, but to remove any ambiguity, um, I've renamed them to Steinthane. Aside from that, these are almost your stereotypical fantasy dwarves, right? Tolkien-esque dwarves. I don't expect to be... I hope I don't default to a Scottish accent when talking about them or a Welsh accent or something equally as European. Probably will. I get... You know, when you're at the table and you're in the moment and you've got a hundred things going on, it just happens. But I'm hoping that I'll be better than that. Anyway, um, but what um, the element of this heritage that I think is important or that will be important is the fact that 
these guys really hold grudges, okay? So these guys, they are very firm in their beliefs. They believe very strongly in what they do and what they think and what they say. Take They take uh, slights to heart. Grudges are a big thing. And for a lot of my guys, not a lot of my guys, for some of my guys, you know, that's a thing that they can't see other differences. They can't take in other opinions. They can't marry in their head that you can talk about the same thing and have multiple views on it one must be right one must be wrong which we know that the world is not black and white it's, it's a series of grays yet this is a way to explore that via Steinthane. so i'm looking forward to to doing that they also have a very set cast system very similar to what you see in dragon age that's important there is much talk i try to I've tried a number of times to show that the value placed on people, the way society placed values on people is incorrect. You know, this this notion that if, if you're wealthy and well-educated, then you are more important than someone that's not as educated and comes from, doesn't own as much money, etc. So one of, the, one of the examples I like to use with my guys is we've talked about, if you were at a party and you met a brain surgeon and a garbage man, because at parties, that's what people tend to do. The first question that anyone asks is, oh, oh pleased to meet you. What do you do? <laughs> you know, we, we all default to that. Because we're, we're measuring people. We measure ourselves against other people. We measure where instinctively we just put people in a pecking order. Anyway, so that's the, so let's say we've spoken to some people and these two individuals, one on the left says, I'm a brain surgeon and the other person is a garbage man or garbage person. And then I ask my guys, so right, of these two people, who do you think is the most important person in society? always hasn't hasn't been different yet always everyone has said the brain surgeon straight off the bat i go okay that's interesting and then i'll ask why the brain surgeon and they go well what was a brain surgeon like look at how much education they've done how much money they make how many lives they save right these people work on people's brains this people this person's a special person it's an important person either okay all right that's important so this person's special important because they make a lot of money and they save people's lives is that correct yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, cool. So the garbage man or the garbage person doesn't make as much money as the other person. Nope. And they just collect garbage. So that makes them not that important. Yep, yep, that's correct. All right. So then I go, right. In a year, how many lives do you think a brain surgeon could save? And and I can see the cogs turning in their heads and they're looking at me because they know I'm leading somewhere, right? And I don't know, they'll come up and I'll say, all right, because they usually stumble at this point. So I go, all right, hypothetically, let's say this brain surgeon works on one person a day, every day of the year. So what's that? 365 people. They save 365 lives. That makes them like really important society, yeah? Yeah, 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 365 lives. Yeah, that's that's massive. All right, that's that's huge. That that makes them a really important person. So, right. so if a brain surgeon doesn't turn up to work for a year, 365 people die. Well, we all in agreement on that. They're like, yep. Yep, we're in agreement with that. Okay, all right. Cool. So just out of interest, what happens if the garbage person doesn't come to work for a year? And they think and they pause. They go, well, there'd be garbage everywhere. You know, there'd be all these scraps. There'd be rubbish. Uh, and I'm, I'm very proud when they make those connections. I'm like, that's awesome. I said, right. So what happens when we don't get rid of rubbish and stuff like that? And eventually we get around to the notion of diseases and, and stuff like that. Infections and yeah, smells and all the rest of it. I said, all right. So if we don't have garbage people coming around collecting all the garbages and our places get just full of all this rubbish that creates disease and and um, 
health problems. How many people do you think would die in a year? And they look at me and you know you've got them in the trap then, right? And they they eventually come to the conclusion that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people will die in, in, in a community the size of even Geelong, let alone a big city like Melbourne or Sydney or, or New York or London. All right? If you didn't have garbage picked up, the fact is that hundreds of thousands of people would die. And so you go back and you ask the question, all right, so if a garbage man doesn't come come to work for a year and hundreds and thousands of people will die and a garbage, sorry, garbage person, or a brain surgeon doesn't come to work and 365 people will die, who's the most important person at the party right now? Right, who's the most important person to society? And that that's a great analogy in terms of getting them to think about stuff. And it's not, I do preface it when saying, look, this isn't, you know, there's many more things that make a person who they are and their importance to society and the people around them. But we do tend to judge people on face value. And sometimes we have to dig deeper. We have to look at the data, you know. So Stein Thane will be a way to express or explore all of that within the game. So the rune bound. So the Stein Thane have an interesting thing where they're not... They're not infertile, but their gestation period is quite long. For me, I've always looked at these um, these ancient races or these races that can live for a very long time. They couldn't possibly have the same birth patterns as human beings. They would be, they'd be just full of people and you wouldn't know what to do with them all. Um, people don't retire from their jobs quick enough because they've been around for hundreds of years. So I've always seen the the gestation period or the the birth cycle of races such as elves and dwarves as having to be longer, just from a logical point sense. And of course, with a major war like the one that I have um, outlined in the background, um, when you lose that many people in such a great time, it's going to take a long time to recover. Certainly, take the stone thing a long time to recover than it did the humans. And so to maintain their peoples if a stein thane dies or when a stein thane dies and if there is a room priest on hand and they're fast enough that room priest will capture the soul of that stein thane so generally on a battlefield this would happen where you'd have set rune priests hanging around um waiting anyway so they'd capture these souls potentially of the greatest generals and greatest warriors and best poets and uh, you know, uh, knowledge holders, great mages, etc., etc., and then they would take this captured soul to a rune smith who would build an, a magically infused. Oh, I'm gonna have to look at how I'm gonna do that. But they would build um, and this ornate set of armor with all these ornate markings. But the markings themselves in the beginning are just lines or intricate patterns of lines, but nothing more than that. And this, this soul is then housed in this set of armor and brought back to life so that they could preserve who that person was and their knowledge and stuff isn't lost. Now, the problem with that from a game perspective is if that a player character starts to play a room bound at first level, theoretically, if this was a great military general or a, a powerful wizard or you know, and a very devout cleric, they should come back with all the powers um, and abilities that they had when they died, which would be unrealistic in a first-level first, uh, game. So what I've decided to do here is that the soul itself is very confused and it takes time 
for it to remember who and what it was. So in the beginning, it's it's not a, it's almost a blank slate. And as it levels, what it's actually doing is it's remembering who it used to be. So as it levels and it gets new skills and new abilities and new traits and and et cetera, et cetera, not only is that represented as the character slowly beginning to remember who they are or who they were, I made it so that a part of their armor would, those lines would morph into a symbol or a depiction of what was relevant to that remembrance or that that part of their history so hypothetically if they were a great teacher at a military college um, and and the character levels up and gets you know law military as an as a focus in um as a focus in fantasy age you know the, a piece on their chest might suddenly morph the lines will morph together to create like a big book with a shield on the book and a sword crossing it to represent that um or what else would happen uh you know a, a number of things if, if they suddenly learned how to play music or started they took the bard specialization at level four um you know maybe something on their arm or their face would turn into musical notes or uh, an instrument or uh, some poetry anything and so eventually by the end of or when they reach level 20th in fantasy age for instance you know what you're looking at is not only a being that remembers who they are completely now, but their body, their their armor is a reflection of that as well. So we have these in ornate stories walking around. I don't know. The concept really appealed to me. That's that's the concept behind the the Roombound, and I love the idea of. So first of all, this that came about because guys love stompy robots, and. One of my favorite superheroes is Colossus, and I always like the idea of being this metal dude running around in a fantasy world. But the main reason I created this race, it was to give players that couldn't come up with a backstory for their character an option to just start with a completely clean slate that made sense. Or it was made for those that come up with way too much backstory that expect me to put it all into the game. Right, I've, I've, my friends are the, some of my friends are the worst for this, but and God bless them because they create some beautiful stuff. But there's no way I could incorporate all that history, all that background, into my game. Plus, a lot of it didn't make sense at first level. You know, they had this amazing life before they become a first level novice. It didn't equate to me. But anyway, so this is this is a way for me to, to not only explore the idea of being a clean slate and remembering who you are and coming back and building as you go. So building as you go, developing as you as you go is, a, is another core theme of our work. So that's that's the room bound. Then we have the Draktar, which I've touched on already, uh, a dinosaur-esque kind of race that live with, I guess, some of the shame of their part in the Great War as, as slaves. How that will play out, I haven't quite decided yet, and I'm not going to dwell too much on them because this podcast is already, or this journal is already gone for very long. Right, so now we get to the beast fallen races from Karnamrath, the ones that were affected by the magical energies and how they came about. We have the Oroxen. Now, the Oroxen are a nod to my favorite race on World of Warcraft, the Tauren. In this world, they are essentially the magical union of human beings and essentially wild cattle, <laughs> Dormandian wild cattle. Uh, known as um, 
Uros, which I think is it's actually a human term. I picked that up somewhere. Um, so yeah, these massive, massive people, very well educated. I see these guys as philosophers. I have almost a great a green a Greek feel about them in terms of this love of philosophy and the way they trade and communicate and talk and that kind of thing. But I'll you know I'll delve deeper into these races individually later. But their main thing is that they are so big that interacting in a human world or with many of the other heritages is very difficult. You know, they, they don't fit through standard doors. They go into a marketplace and knock everything over. The the proverbial bull in the alchemist shop is applicable here. You know, this this is a way another way of exploring that I don't fit in. Maybe it is because the the individual is quite large or they just don't feel they fit in and everything they do is you know, tends to upset someone or something. It's a great way to explore that. No more thought than that. Moving on. The Orcanus. The Orcanus is emerging of Black Orc and Wolf or Dire Wolf. This is probably my favorite race. Now, I don't know why it is, but a lot of those in the fur community, many of them tend to identify with wolves. I don't know why. I don't know what is specific about wolf. Maybe it's because of its strength, its knowledge, the notion of pack. I don't know. But all that is explored with the Orcanus. Um, they're very pack-focused people, very tribal, very attuned to the land, that kind of thing. Now, one of the things I did want to put in with the Orcanus, so there's two things. One, because they have Black Orc, Black Orc and Direwolf heritage, they can be quick to anger, kind of in a berserk rage kind of thing, especially when it comes to combat. They just go off. I haven't decided how exactly how I'm going to make that play out yet. Uh, but that's kind of in the back of my head. It's also very stereotypical, so I'm I'm almost inclined to lean the other way and go, these are actually a very peaceful people. And that stereotype of them being barbarian, quick to anger is wrong. The other thing I want to bring in is something that I used to be part of D6 Star Wars from West End Games, which I absolutely loved. And that is that this race here can't speak normally because of just because of the way that their whole mouth larynx vocal system is built and in d6 star wars if you played a wookie um you had to nominate a player at the table another character at the table as long as that character was at the table or in in the same area as your character you could speak freely but if that character that understood and could relate wookie wasn't there as the player all you could do was talk like a wookie you could you could gesture you could make grunts and try and recreate wookie noises and i just love that concept as another way of communicating and so this is what i want to do with the orcanus so essentially if if the the character that they pick is their spokesperson for want of a better term they can speak freely that person's in a different place or doesn't rock up that day <laughs> i'm gonna have them doing nothing but dog noises or wolf noises and howls and grunts and stuff and hopefully it'll stop splitting up parties too we'll see how that goes but uh, yeah different way of communicating finding new ways to communicate yeah kind of excited about that one and last but not least is the neotoma and the neotoma are a blending of halflings what was halflings I think it's halflings, could be just humans, could be dwarves, I haven't decided yet, or sorry, Steinthane, and rats, that's right, rat people, they're also a very popular choice, don't know why, but they are, and I'm not a fan of halflings, or gnomes, never have been, likely never will be, I don't know what it is about those two races that annoy me, but they do, oh, sorry, not races, heritages um, that annoy me, I, I, they just, I can tolerate halflings, 
not excited by them. They don't impress me. I don't think of them. Gnomes, I just don't get. When I saw that picture of the first gnome, I think in AD&D and that massive nose, and I'm like, why would I ever play that? <laughs> that stuck with me forever. That's my own personal thing. I get to cut races out, uh, heritages out, because there's too many of them. So yeah, the Neotoma, they take the place of those shorter races and they are very much act in the moment kind of race. They will have easily distracted, very compulsive, quick to get in trouble, likely to go, ooh, shiny, and run after that really quick. That's the kind of thing I'm trying to deal with this race. I've realized I've kind of shortened everything down because this podcast, is, this particular episode has gotten very long and I need to stop here. So thank you for listening if, if you're listening. Otherwise, this is just you, Paris, with your thoughts. And I don't know if you've got time to sit around for an hour to listen to your own thoughts, but this is where you're headed. I like where I'm at with with the heritages um, they all need to be fleshed out more to be honest but gives you an idea of of what i'm looking at within my setting and how that equates to my work and to exploring character in a way that's more organic even if it's just for playing for fun um, as opposed to work i mean everything i do is playing for fun even at work but anyway i digress so with that i'm signing off stay safe stay strong and stay upwind from orcs this is paris out